So today we are starting a series. It's a short series, just going to be three sermons. I will be gone for one Sunday this month, but uh, the three Sundays I am here, December, we are going to be going over the Spirit. And the first sermon entitled, The Spirit Sanctifies. Now, I think more times than not, people underestimate the Spirit. Now, they underestimate who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does. See, the Spirit is not just a tool, all right? The Spirit is not just some tool you can pick up whenever you think you need it. The Spirit is a person, and it's a person, I shouldn't say it's, rather, the Spirit is a person of the Godhead. Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus gives the Great Commission in verse 19, he says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Something very interesting about this verse, that word therefore name in the Greek is singular. It doesn't say names. The singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that is one name there. The implication being that is a name for God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One name. So when I say the Spirit is part of the Godhead, I mean He's a person. He's a person to have a relationship. You shouldn't think of Him as, or think of the Spirit as just some part separate from God. He's a member of the Godhead, three in one. Now, I will clarify before we go any further, this is by no means, this series is not going to be a comprehensive take on the Spirit, right? Uh, speaking of which, more in-depth kind of take on it, I guess the Spirit, if you want, on the back little table by the welcome table, I have uh, an excerpt from my theology paper, gets in kind of deeper stuff. If you want that, it gets into deep stuff. So the sermon series, not a comprehensive take on the Spirit. There's a lot to it that I will more than likely, well, not more than likely, will definitely not cover. I'm just highlighting a few things that I think are especially important to cover because you see the Spirit and God's work through the Spirit is much more amazing and much more beautiful than I think any of us could imagine or even describe. Now, if you don't think so, I question whether or not you've actually seen the Spirit's work. Like, if you've never in life have experienced the Spirit's work and just said to yourself, wow, I can't believe what the Spirit did through that person in their life. I can't believe how it changed them. If you've never thought that to yourself, I question whether or not you have eyes to see and a heart that is open and ready to accept what Christ has to say and what Christ can do in your life because the Spirit's work, when you see it, it's just amazing. Uh, now, again, I, I'm by no means, I, I really need to clarify, uh, claiming to know all there is to know about the Spirit. I am by no means telling you all there is to know about the Spirit in this sermon series, okay? The work of the Spirit cannot be limited to just a tiny little box. Right? Is that something that we tend to do as human beings or when we believe in God? At least that's something I think we've all done at one point. We've tried to put God in a box, thinking God's work is only as far as, as we can understand and as far as we can comprehend. But really, God's work is always outside of the little box you think it should be in. 
And the same thing applies to God's work through the Spirit. Now, that being said, the sermon specifically on the sanctification is going to be a little technical. It's going to kind of feel more like a class than my normal sermons. I'm going to get into some technical parts of the Spirit here, but man, sanctification. This sermon just on sanctification is not a full encompassing sermon on sanctification. Again, to clarify, don't expect me to tell you everything there is to know about sanctification, but here's the thing. Sanctification, I would argue, is the main work of the Spirit. Now, I'm not preaching a sermon on the conviction of the Spirit. Okay, we're skipping a little step here, right? Why am I not preaching a sermon on the conviction of the Spirit? Well, I think at least most of you in here have at least felt an ounce of conviction, right? And hopefully after conviction comes, you know, belief, repentance, immersion, right? Hopefully that follows after you are convicted. Hopefully you respond to conviction. I think at least most of you in here have felt that conviction, right? So we're going to skip that just for a little bit. I, I know, you know, you might feel cheated, but I really want to get into the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, to begin, if you could go to the next slide. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 14. I read this a few weeks ago. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Christ Jesus. Sanctification leads to salvation. I talked about this several weeks ago. Sanctification is directly linked to salvation. One thing I will cover real quick before we get into our main text, this, it's going to be a tough text. Um, even as I was reading it, my heart kind of sank. Um, sometimes when I read texts in preparation to preach, it's tough because I want everybody to get it. I do. When I pre- any, every sermon I preach, I, I hope that I can at least help you uh, to see God more clearly. You know, I'm not saying that I see God clearly, but I want to see God more clearly. And so with this sermon, the text that I read, the text that I prepared for, it made my heart sink because, one, you know, every day I am gaining knowledge and I just want to know God more. And my heart sank because, man, I can't make you believe I can't make you see God. And so preparing for a sermon series on the Spirit, I have to keep in mind that, man, it's not my work. For you to come to see God, for you to come to know God, for you to have God work through your life, it's not my work. I can't do that. And so my heart sank because I'm the type of person, my personality, I like to fix things. Uh, but the reality is I cannot make y'all have the work of the Spirit in your lives. And so this was tough to prepare for. One thing I will cover real quick before we get into the text is the word itself, sanctification. Now, we get our English translation 
sanctification from the Latin word santifico. Now, santifico is a Latin translation of the Greek word hagiasmos. Hagiasmos, I know this is a lot here, maybe. Uh, Hagiasmos comes from the word hagios. Here's the point. Hagios means holy. So you can kind of get the idea of what it means to be sanctified or have sanctification take place in your life. In a way, it's saying you're being made holy or holified, right? So that's what's behind this word sanctification. And there's another sheet, it's a short sheet, it has all the references to the word sanctification. It would help if you read that because, again, this sermon is not all-encompassing. It has the references and it has the etymology of the word. Now, with this in mind, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm sorry, this is going to be a little more technical, not as poetic, I guess you could say, as some of my sermons, but that's all right. Uh, Some of you all like technical. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Context. The Old Testament sacrifices, they were insufficient. They did not really change those who made them. So Christ, on the other hand, he is sufficient. That's the context. That is what the Hebrew writer is talking about. So the animal sacrifices, according to this verse, they were not lasting. The verse clearly says they could not perfect those who offered him. Now you may be thinking, I do want to clarify, you may be thinking, well, wasn't animal sacrifices a primitive cultural thing that doesn't matter to us? Let me tell you why it matters. All societies past and present, believe that when somebody does wrong, they should be punished for their sins or their wrongs, right? So God, being gracious, allowed the Israelites to make a sacrifice to atone for their sins. Thus, the animal that they sacrificed bore the punishment due for their sins, namely death. All right, now you may think, well, that doesn't sound too fair to the animals, right? You're right. It doesn't sound too fair to the animals because our sin, our wrongs, has caused God's creation Pain. So yes, it is not fair because we did wrong. All this being said, the animal sacrifices, they were temporary. They were insufficient. They did not really change people. Continue on in verses 2 through 7. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, notice something especially important here in verse to, quote-unquote, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. That is the goal, or rather, that was the goal of sacrifices. But the animal sacrifices couldn't do that. They couldn't take away consciousness of sins. Now, when it says consciousness, it's not saying you would just not remember them. The word used here, it, ha- it talks about your morality. It has more to do with your morality, what you deem to be right or wrong. So essentially, the goal of the sacrifice was to change your conscience, to turn it away from evil, to turn it away from sin, and turn it away from good. 
He's not saying you're just not going to remember them. He's saying, no, I want to change your conscience and turn it to good. That was the idea and the hope behind the sacrifices, but the animal sacrifices could not change their conscience. It was only a temporary cleansing, and we need someone to change us internally. And Jesus, here in this text, he says, you know what? I've come to accomplish the will of God. They accomplished the will of God in a few different ways. One, he lived exactly the way God intended. And two, he has atoned for our sins. He bore the punishment for our sins. And there's more to it. Let's read in verses 8 through 10. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I will come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By the will of God, through Jesus' sacrifice, we have been sanctified. You see, Jesus, he did not die just to cleanse you. He also died to change you. Meaning he died so that we could receive the Holy Spirit so that we can be sanctified, so that we can be made holy. The way we act, the way we talk, the way we live is made holy through the indwelling of the Spirit that we can have because of Christ. See, church, God does not just want to cleanse you. He wants to change you. See, unfortunately, I think so many ministers have misled so many people just by saying, you know, come to Jesus so you can be cleansed. But that wasn't the end. Jesus wanted people to come to Him, yes, so they can be cleansed, so they can have their sins removed from them, but also so that they can be changed by Him and the work that He does. God does not just want to cleanse you. He wants to change you. Some people just want the cleansing without being changed. But let me tell you something, when you reject the change that God offers, you also reject the cleansing that God offers. A silly example, um, take the example of a parent changing a baby's diaper, right? Say the parent you know, takes off the dirty diaper, cleanses the baby, and then puts the dirty bi- diaper back on, right? What's that going to do? Nothing. See, when you reject the change God so desires in your life, you lose the cleansing. You don't believe me? Well, let's continue on in verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, when I talk about God changing you through the Spirit, I don't want you to think that this means you're always going to do what is right. right? It's a process. Here in verse 14 when it says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Being sanctified, all right? It's a process throughout your life. Sanctification is a process. So I don't want you to misunderstand me when I say we got to be changed by God. I'm not saying you're going to be doing the right things all the time. 
What I am saying is this change that God so desires is a lifetime process, and eventually when Christ returns, as promised here in verse 14, he is going to perfect those who are being sanctified. Notice something there. Those who are being sanctified. Not just those who were dunked and chunked and then never uh, received the Spirit to change them. All right? Dunked and chunked. That's a silly way to say that, but you get my point. (laughs) To perfect those who are being sanctified. If you're not being sanctified, you're not going to be perfected by Christ. Continue on to verses 15 through 20. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness for us after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts. We talked about it a little bit, didn't we? And write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. We have confidence to enter through to, before God. Why? It says because of the blood of Jesus and the new and living way. Again, you're not just baptized and then that's it. Through the Spirit, through Christ. Work, you can have this new and living way, which means really just to say you're going to have a new life because I'm going to change you. Verses 21 and 22. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure Waters, our hearts being clean, cleansed, <laughs> cleansed from what? An evil conscience. Again, what does conscience have to do with? Uh, it has to do with your, I guess, your moral compass, right? So instead of being pointed towards evil, instead of having evil intent, you're pointed towards God having good intent. See, that's what the Spirit does in your life. He points you towards God so that you can have pure intent instead of evil and selfishness. On the other hand, let's continue in verses 23 through 27. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Pay very close attention to the verses that Follow. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a, fi- a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If we go on sinning deliberately, meaning you decide, yeah, this is how I want to live, this is what I want to practice, I don't, I don't want the change that God offers me, I want the life that I have, I want what I want. I just want the things that give me pleasure. I don't want that life. I don't want to be changed by God. So when you say that, as the text clearly says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
And this is where my heart sank. Because I know there are so many people that I know that won't get this. They won't want the change that God offers. They won't want the new life that is in Christ. And they won't really want the cleansing that Christ provides because by rejecting the change God so offers you, you lose the cleansing. Now, I'm not talking to the people who slip up out of, and sin out of weakness. I'm talking to the people who receive the truth but then decide, you know what? I'm going to live in and I'm going to practice sin. I don't want to be changed. I can't emphasize this enough. And verses 28 through 31 tell us how serious this is. It says, And anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living, the living God. See, it's, it's an insult to the cross. It's an insult to Christ to think he just died just so you can live life, you know, just however you want. Yeah, my sins are wiped away, but I'm going to live however I want. It's an insult to Christ to reject the change he offers you. Jesus did not just sacrifice him just so you could be cleansed. He wanted to change you. Unfortunately, I think so many people have been taught otherwise. No, Jesus doesn't want to change you. No, Jesus doesn't want you to live as he lived. No, Jesus, he just wants you to not bear the penalty for your sins. That's it. I'm afraid we've limited the gospel to just cleansing and not an amazing change that can happen through the Spirit. Now, I don't want anybody to, I don't want anybody to be scared into believing, right? I don't want to scare you into believing. Yes, it is a serious thing to profane the cross of Christ, but... Man, when you see, when you finally really see the work and the, the amazing work through Christ and the amazing work through the Spirit, when you see what work can be done on your life, when you see what change can take place in your life, when you see that you can finally be turned to God and turned away from sin, when you see you can finally be saved and become sanctified, that ought to make you want that. At least I hope it does. I don't want you to be scared into believing. I want you to see the glorious work of God. Do you want that? Do you want to be sanctified? Do you want to be cleansed? Do you want to be changed? Because that is good. If you haven't already, and if you want to, it's a lifetime process. You can come as we stand and sing.